you get off on the weird? Monsters, Halloween, horror. You've heard of word porn, car porn, earth porn. Now prepare yourself for monster porn. Is this really a good idea? Weird fiction and horror podcast. Created by the Backwards Hat Guy, Matt Cummins. Are you trying to teach psychic powers to animals? Puggles, the abomination trapped in the body of an adorable teacup piggy. Good for humans. And myself, lead occultist, Brett Norwood. Today's story is For Your Service by Matt Cummins. What a fan-fucking-tastic day, you raging horde of weirdly aroused monsturbators. Matt, I like your enthusiasm. It reminds me of when I cared. I'm just super excited that we're getting close to 50 full-length episodes and grateful for our listeners. Yes, in fact, we just got a new Apple Podcast review that was a pleasure to read. In fact, it might be my second favorite review ever. The first one is the one that says, Brit is sexy AF. I feel like, so far, that is the most insightful critical analysis of our literary work. But, Grumpy Girl 1081 is giving that other reviewer a run for their money. She says, I love this show. It has everything I'm looking for in a horror podcast. It's funny, disgusting, outrageous, and deeply thoughtful. Both of the show's creators have a different and unique style of writing. Matt's being more real-world turned to Twilight Zone dread to Tales from the Crypt-style horror, as in The Creep and The Filth Licker, while Brett has got cosmic irony, as in Alpha and Omega, and real thought-provoking horror, as in The Cow in Reverse, down to a science, that keeps me entertained. The skits before and after the show are an added bonus as well as the outtakes, where you get to hear how much fun it sounds like they're having making the show. Keep up the great work, guys, and I can't wait to give Puggles kisses. P.S. I love the scene when Brett punted Puggles down the block. I can't begin to tell you how many times I have fantasized about doing that to someone who just won't stop running their mouth. That is amazing. No kidding. Really filled my heart with something approximating joy to read that. Thanks, Grumpy Girl 1081. Can't wait to oh, give Puggles kisses. Oh, uh. Cool it, pork loins. She said she loved the part where I punted you to next Tuesday as well, so how about we reenact that for Grumpy Girl, eh? Hey, what, what, what are you, uh... What do you mean I can't stop running my mouth? I am an eloquent and well-spoken with my observations, but I am normally a ham of silent stoicism. Be quiet. Carry a big stick if you know what I mean. I know when to speak and when to keep silent. Maybe we should make Puggles plushies. It'd be a lot more tolerable than the real thing. Brett, do you remember that time when you gave birth to yourself? Did that really happen? What? Hey, that's my line. What? I'm the one that's always saying, to your absurdity, never mind. Try to focus, Matt. I came here for your consultation on a very specific problem. I've noticed that the walking path has been particularly slow lately. There only seem to be joggers this time of year, and it is particularly difficult to strike up a conversation with a woman while she's jogging. I've tried several times. I've noticed the ones with the puffy coats move slower, so I've tried with them, and well, those women can really move. It is the oddest thing. One minute they're jogging along, and then, as soon as I shout, Good day, madame. I was wondering if you might opine regarding my new cape. 
and try to jog with them. They turn into uncannily sprightly sprinters. Oh my god, women don't want to be chased by a man in a cape while jogging on an empty jogging path. They don't? In what world? Pray tell, what do women want if not that? Have you seen my cape? Yeah, the batwing cutouts are classy. Have you tried just clubbing them over the top of the head and dragging them back to your cave yet, Batman? Matt, I would never club a woman and drag her to a cave. I'd drag her to a nice restaurant. Have you tried introducing yourself as Harvey Epstein Cosby III? My uncle? Why? Wait, Matt, are you okay? You seem a little... A little what? Useless? Is that what you're about to say? No, I was going to say bitter. Butthurt. Ass mad. Fifteen years of writing, Brett, and I just realized I'm fucked! Well, I could have told you that about your writing fifteen years ago. Why are you just figuring this out? Here. Who is this? Tell me, who is this? Well, that's Stephen King. He was much less creepy looking when he was younger. Handsome, even. Apparently, this is Stephen King's son, Joe Hill. I just read NOS4A2. N-O... what? Nosferatu. It was a goddamn good book. I've been working on being the next king for 15 years and the motherfucker went and cloned himself. Oh, you mean... had a kid? No! Look at that picture! He looks just like his dad... Dad! With a few flaws removed... He writes just like him, too, and that's worse, because he's young and energetic and less political, and goddammit, if he is king, he'll start writing about five books a year, and he'll swallow the genre whole! What's got your floral panties into a twist? Shut it, pig, and get in the backpack. We're going on an excursion. Oh, uh, talk to me in that tone again, and it'll be a, oh, a butt pack. Ah, yes, let's go see the river beast. He'll know what to do. Nope, we're going to Bangor, Maine. Isn't that in, uh, Thailand? Uh, you're thinking of Banghor, that's the capital? No, kids. We're going to prove that the Master has cloned himself in order to ruin my chances at having a writing career. We're going to see the King. Today was better, Alex said as he took his hat off and set it on the seat next to him. He couldn't get it to sit right. The bill was too far forward. And you come back and you see the guys you grew up with, and they say stuff like, Thanks for your service, or I'm glad you're back safely. And it was nice at first, I guess, he said, and then he went back to adjusting his hat, a baseball cap he'd worn since childhood that just didn't look right on the brown folding chair on which it sat. He pushed it back a little, not that he cared where it sat, however. He just wanted it to stay where he left it. Alex was sitting in a circle of five men and two women in the basement of the Baptist Church on South Carlton Street, just a few blocks away from where he went to high school, shooting the shit in a therapeutic circle jerk because when things from war followed you home, this is what you did. He moved the hat again. And now? Asked a fit-looking blonde man with the first signs of gray in the hair just below his temples. His name was Kent. Alex messed with the hat some more. Now, he said and made a sound just short of a snort. Now I just don't even look at them. One guy, an old buddy of mine, he just became a loan officer at the bank. I went and saw him the other day. I needed six grand to buy a Nissan. Nothing crazy expensive or anything. One of those little trucks, a Frontier, I think you call it. He asks what I make and I tell him. And he says, oh, good. Yeah, that's great. And then he runs my credit report and he says that I don't have enough credit for the loan. I ask why not. 
and he tells me that I don't have any credit, and that I'll need a co-signer. He was real sorry and all. Hey, he even appreciated my service. I asked him how in the hell he got the loan for his brand new F-150, and he said that he has great credit. We're the same age. He doesn't make any more money than me, and he has debt, so that he has a credit score. I have cash in the bank, cash enough to buy the truck outright, but I didn't have the damn credit. That's what I can't stand. These community college motherfuckers around here just walk all high and mighty like they've got their shit together, even though they've got 20 grand in debt for a degree that has less value than the dollar store toilet paper that they have to buy to wipe their high and mighty asses with. But they all walk around like they've made the smart choice, and maybe they did after all because they are the ones who can get loans. All I got was a right ass cheek full of shrapnel, a bunch of dead. Alex stopped, feeling tears welling at the corner of his eyes. Did you want to finish that thought? Kent asked. Alex shook his head. It doesn't matter, he said, his face stoic. Kent thanked him for speaking, and then the others clapped. Jolie spoke next. She had some sad story about a suicide bomber mistiming the explosive on his vest and blowing up a civilian vehicle in front of her transport. Alex didn't hear much of it because he didn't want to take his eyes off of his hat. It was sitting in the center of the chair, but then the chair got bumped and it shifted. Alex looked up to see that John Buck, an army guy with intense blue eyes and a jaw that looked carved from granite, had come in and sat down. John was a guy who knew what it was really like over there. Alex could see it in his face. John spoke, and Alex looked at his hat, and then the moment he took his eyes off of it, the hat fell off the chair. From the corner of his eye, he'd seen a small hand come from behind the chair and give it a push. He stood abruptly and left. For those in the room who saw him leave, the word that came to their mind was fled. The hat remained on the floor. Those boxes are marked with a red sticker. They don't go there, said Barry as he pushed his glasses back up the bridge of his nose. He was a short man who could only be described as skinny fat, as he had the arms of a young boy but the belly of a budding beer drinker. This is where we were putting them all last week, Alex said, standing straight and looking past Barry, a habit he'd yet to break when talking to a person in charge, if this little runt could ever be called in charge. Yes, but this isn't last week, and I'm not sure what they teach you other than how to shoot people, but in the real world, things change, Barry said. Now move that shit or I'll write you up for it. And remember, you've only got two write-ups before you turn into Lieutenant Johnson. Lieutenant Gone Johnson. And if you can't stack boxes in a warehouse, then you probably can't even scrub the shitters at Walmart. Alex looked at him from the corner of his eye, not turning his head. He could see Barry who was a head shorter than him, take a step back. Hey, don't give me that attitude or you'll write you up right now, Barry said. Alex looked away. He could handle getting shouted at, even if it was by this little prick. Sergeant Stokely had screamed in his ear every morning for four weeks, threatening to use his big black member as a baton on Alex's mom. That was intimidating. Terrifying, even, at first. He could still feel the spit splattering in droplets on his nose and brow while Stokely's coffee and cigarette-laden breath hit him like a warm, damp rag across the face each time the word fuck exploded from his lips. By the end of boot camp, Alex would only hear the important parts, and all of the threats and ostentations faded into background noise that was much like the sound of an alarm clock that you just wanted to smash with your fist, but you didn't. 
Barry started scribbling something down on his notepad when suddenly a stack of boxes came tumbling towards him. Alex saw it happen and reacted. The tower shifted suddenly on its base. The second lowest box came forward, and the ones on top leaned back, nearly fell in that direction, and then after a slight pause fell forward. Two heavy boxes were coming right at Barry, and he didn't even notice the commotion. He was still working on his notepad when Alex ran forward, grabbed him by the waist, and threw him out of the way. Barry mewled in surprise as they both landed hard to the side. The boxes landed hard, breaking open and spilling their guts onto the floor. Alex climbed to his feet and asked Barry if he was all right. Barry, now bug-eyed and sweating, nodded slowly, and then he got to his feet on shaky legs. Alex looked to the backside of the boxes, expecting to see a forklift or a co-worker, but saw nothing. What the fuck did you do? Barry said, but Alex held a finger up and shushed him. Barry's indignation was palpable, but he followed Alex's gaze, which seemed to travel from the floor to the ceiling and then every corner of the room. What do you think you're... Barry began. Did you hear it? Alex interrupted. Hear what? Barry asked, his indignation turning into annoyance. A child laughing, Alex said. What? What the fuck did you just say? Barry bleated out, looking around again. His confidence was on thin ice for a moment. Barry could handle a fucking jarhead or whatever you called this military-looking fucker in front of him, but what he couldn't handle was a crazy jarhead. Alex's eyes narrowed on a point behind the boxes. Barry could see nothing but a blank space on the concrete floor. What the fuck are you staring at? Barry asked. Get away, Alex whispered and then said louder, Leave me alone! What? Get out! I don't need to write you up. Get out now, you fucking crazy fucker! Barry shouted. You're Looney Tunes. I'm not sure what you smoked or put up your nose over there, but I don't care. You're Dunzo. Get out now! The sand was still hot hours after the sun went down, and just like sand at the beach, that shit got everywhere eventually. Alex was co-driving an HEMTT, a heavy expanded mobility tactical truck, in the middle of a supply line going into an area just outside of Baghdad. They were stopped, so Alex took a moment to take a leak outside of the truck. They'd been driving for three days, and he was tired of staring at the sand and the blazing sunlight. He was tired of sitting down, and more than anything, he was tired of pulling out his cock and shoving it into a bottle to take a leak, or taking the wheel of the truck so that Dugan could do the same from the driver's seat. He was tired of having to dig holes in the sand to take a dump. He was tired of the sand getting into all the places that it wasn't supposed to be whenever the wind blew. He was tired of waiting for one of the vehicles in the lead to lift suddenly in the air with the sound of an explosion, or for gunshots to rain down from some gopher hole in the hills. He was sick of the crawl. Nothing happened quickly in the desert. You crawled across the desert floor in supply caravans, and then once you were established, you did everything you could to not have to move during the day in the heat. His gear weighed somewhere near 40 pounds, he guessed. He didn't really know. But what he did know was that packing full gear in the desert was probably worse than sitting in the cab and waiting for hell of some kind to be your final destination. Being in the sand was truly the worst vacation a person could ask for. The journey was terrible, and the destination was nearly always worse. More than anything, he was tired of thinking. Thinking about the boy. Alex took a piss and looked across towards a hill covered in small shrub-like desert plants which gave it a look of a balding head. 
of a giant sticking up from the sand. The whole terrain was like this, dry, hot, and devoid of life. And what life that did exist, mostly human, seemed set on eradicating itself. The wind rose in a gust, and a sheet of sand blew between Alex and the hill. He climbed back into the truck. That was close, Dugan said as a gust momentarily reduced the visibility outside. I wasn't even out there, and I can feel the sand in my ass crack already. The line continued to move, and in the distance, they could see the buildings that they were approaching. A village, or the remains of one. Look sharp, Dugan said and loosened his revolver. Alex raised his machine gun and kissed it for luck. Neither of them wanted to see any more action. You never said it out loud, but he had the feeling that Dugan was less inclined towards violence than Alex had been. But the inevitability of the desert is that eventually, soldier or citizen, your hand is going to be forced into the grip of a gun. Alex had wanted to serve despite his aversion to violence. He'd always wanted to serve. His father had served, and his father before him. Alex could remember his mother laboring in the kitchen over bacon and grits, the sweet smells of the meat drawing him from the living room, where he, as a little boy, had spent his mornings watching Ninja Turtles, Ghostbusters, and his personal favorite, G.I. Joe. His mother would pause on those quiet mornings and stare longingly at the picture of her husband, Alex's father, on a small island shelf that divided the dining room from the living room in their single-wide trailer. Alex's mother spent many mornings and nights looking at that photo, waiting for a phone call that thankfully never came. The photo was of Alex's dad in his uniform, the beret sitting over his square features. The assertiveness of his heavy jaw was punctuated with a single dimple on the broad expanse of his chin. To Alex, he looked like a superhero or a G.I. Joe come to life when frozen in time by a photograph. Someday, that'll be me, Alex thought to himself. Then someday came, and it was him, except he hadn't left a wife and a child behind. Alex was in too early and shipped off too quickly. He'd barely ever dated, let alone considered marriage. The world had largely moved on from young marriages. They were out of vogue. After all, how could kids marry kids? No one was mature enough to handle marriage by 18. Shipping kids off to war? Now that shit was a courant. Maybe age didn't matter with war, though. It was something Alex would think about later, in those sober moments, when the despair of his isolation settled around him like a heavy winter storm. Could the human mind ever be mature enough, sane enough, to handle the horrors of war? It would be these moments later, when his first taste of military violence would rush back to him. Everything after that seemed like a dream brought on by trauma. He didn't know it when he was there because too much was happening. It kept him in the moment. But when he went home, the horrors followed him. Boot camp was terribly inadequate. It was the most difficult thing he'd ever done at that point in his young life. But simulations at home don't prepare you for the concussive effects of an explosion. The sight of a friend screaming with their guts spilling out and into their own hands while machine guns fire all around you and seeing human body parts strewn across the desert floor. The worst thing that happened to him was in his first brief moment of action. Alex was doing a routine sweep looking for insurgents in a village. All the intel pointed to this village, but by the end of their first sweep they had found nothing. The order came down to begin searching for a bunker, which meant going through every corner of the village and looking for a hatch or a hidden doorway. 
On the far edge of the village, Alex found a series of symbols on a rock wall that acted as a sort of perimeter to the village. He followed them until he came to a well at the edge of town. There was nothing by this well except for a little boy. Hey! Alex shouted. Get out of here, kid! The boy stood and approached Alex, waving his scrawny arms and shouting in Arabic. He couldn't have been a day over nine, but his eyes were cold and angry. He bent and scooped up a rock and threatened to throw it at Alex. Whoa! Hey, kid, chill it, all right? Alex said. Just let me take a look at that well. Alex took a step forward, and the kid threw the rock. It struck Alex on his cheek, and he stepped back, stunned. And in that moment, someone opened fire. Alex stumbled to his left, firing his gun without looking, and felt a glancing blow from the bullet on his body armor as he fell over the rock wall. The bullets hit in a muffled thump, thump, thump in the sandy hill behind him. He searched himself for wounds and only found one, the bleeding on his cheek where he'd been struck with the flat edge of the rock. His tactical glasses had a small spatter of blood on them, and that was collecting sand. But he didn't wipe them. Instead, he belly-crawled forward towards a partial collapse of the wall. He moved away from the gunfire, but not a moment too soon. A grenade destroyed a portion of the wall that he'd just crawled away from. Smoldering rocks fell over him like a hellish hailstorm. He approached the gap in the rock wall and found a missing stone that created a peephole. He peered through it. He could see movement beyond the wall. Four men were coming out of a building that was now smoking. He could hear more gunfire coming from the south side of the village. His team was coming to his aid. The head of one man snapped forward, a hole exploding out of the backside of his hairline. He fell sideways like a puppet with cut strings, and when he hit the ground, his arms and legs continued to move and kick. There was gunfire and screaming. With the men distracted, Alex rose up onto his knees, suddenly aware that he was disoriented, possibly from the blast of the grenade. He struggled to find his balance, but then came to rest on the rock wall with his elbows. He peered through his scope and froze. In his discombobulated state, he was looking through the scope, but aiming short of the now three men who posed a threat. Instead, he saw the boy sitting, not quite sitting, folded against the well, his head up, his eyes flicking back and forth while he panted like a fish out of water, his mouth wide open. His chest reminded Alex of the one time he'd seen a rabbit get shot at close range with a shotgun. The small body had been turned nearly inside out by the force of the blast. That was how the little boy appeared to him, nearly inside out but still alive. <sighs> they are exit wounds, goddammit, Alex told himself, trying to convince himself that it was the other men who had shot the boy. But there was blood splatter on the well on his side, and that meant that the boy had likely taken a few of Alex's bullets as well. Alex aimed at the child's head, watched as the eyes continued flicking back and forth, and then just as he was about to pull the trigger, the eyes settled on his. The brown pupils focused to pinpricks, and in the bright desert sunlight, the panting stopped. But neither the rage or defiance that he'd seen earlier survived. The last thing he saw in the child's eyes before the pupils relaxed and the breathing stopped was fear, childish fear, the kind of fear that searches for an adult to assuage. But Alex took too long, and the kid died before he could pull the trigger. That had happened three weeks before they moved towards Baghdad, but as they approached this last village, it was impossible not to think about the boy at the well, bleeding to death and pleading with his eyes. The line stopped again, and a tank broke off to the left. 
They were going to set up a post for the nearby target area. Here, they would be able to transport supplies and provide medical for injured soldiers. The firefight was supposed to be miles away, as air support had already neutralized the threats, which was just another way of saying they bombed the shit out of the village. But one of the first things you learn in the desert is that with humans, just like wildlife, anytime you see shelter, you'll find life. They stopped the truck, armed themselves, and joined up with the other soldiers outside of the vehicles. Moments later, they were sweeping through the village. The wind blew sand across the desert floor as they entered the charred remains of six or seven crumbling houses. Ah, Christ, Dugan said as the wind brought the smell of rotting flesh. Alex felt his stomach twist, but he forced the urge to vomit back, focusing on the possibility of gunfire. They passed the body of a woman who had thrown herself over the body of a small boy before the explosions had ripped her apart like a sack of grain, spilling this and that from her insides out. The child's stick-like legs coming from the bulk of his mother's carcass made Alex think of some kind of weird human-chicken hybrid. He stifled a laugh. He'd found himself doing that a lot lately. In the 100-degree heat, the bodies had already swelled and then imploded. The stink of human rot was strong, and the bodies would need to be carefully removed and burned before setting up their supply line. The first four buildings had the same result, small fires, bodies in the streets, and the smell of corpses in the desert heat. Dugan wiped at his mouth, his face pale. So far, all was clear. They only had three more structures to check before scanning the market for body heat signatures and then giving the all clear. That was when Alex saw him. A small boy wearing a vest was walking towards Alex with his hands in the air and tears pouring down his cheeks. Ah, oh, motherfuck! Stay back! Dugan shouted, but his voice was aimed in the opposite direction. Alex looked at the boy, and an injection of fear flooded his veins. This boy looked nearly identical, was identical to the boy from the other village. The boy Alex had possibly killed and watched suffer. The boy walked parallel to Alex, looking at him with fascination on his face. Alex followed the boy as he walked from Alex's left and then to his right. Alex turned and saw what Dugan was yelling at. An unarmed man was approaching. Alex knew he was unarmed because he was naked and covered in blood. He wept with a maniacal look in his eyes. Alex kept his eyes on the boy, though, as the boy walked behind the naked man, and here was where things got really strange, perhaps stranger than seeing a dead boy walk across the desert. The boy was moving at one speed, a slow but deliberate walk, and the naked man and the other soldiers were moving at another speed. It was like they were moving in slow motion, or perhaps the boy was moving faster. It was impossible to tell because whatever speed the boy moved at, Alex was processing the events at the same speed. As Dugan and the other soldiers turned towards the man at a rate of maybe an inch per second, Alex watched the boy reach from behind his back and pull out a machete. With his other hand, he pointed with his forefinger and clicked his thumb down in a fake gun gesture. But real bullets came out. Alex could see them coming through the air much faster than anything else, but still far too slowly to be real. The naked man fell to the ground, and then the boy drove the machete through the side of the man's head. Then everything disappeared behind a gust of sand that forced the soldiers to their knees. Alex heard shouts and commotion as he dropped his rifle to his side. Someone behind him shouted his name, 
and then he felt himself being pulled back into one of the buildings. What the fuck happened? Where did all those shots come from? Dugan was shouting. Alex said, The boy! What? What boy? Dugan asked, but Alex didn't answer. Couldn't answer. It was crazy. And he'd be goddamned if he didn't know it was crazy, but he couldn't deny that he'd seen it happen. We need to get back, Dugan shouted at the other soldiers. They were far enough into the village to be out of the line of sight of the tanks and the gunners, and with the sand, they'd have to make it all of the way back, which was only a few hundred feet, but with shots being fired, it might as well have been a mile. Alex went left, Dugan went right, and the wind picked up and carried the sand in the dying daylight. Shots rang out, and Alex couldn't see where the men had gone, but he motioned for Dugan to cover him. He ran straight, and to the right, behind another building. Now he was in the head with Dugan and the other soldiers behind him. He shot cover fire towards the men, and Dugan came up to the remains of the building on their left. He motioned forward to Alex, and the other men followed suit. But Dugan started forward and then stumbled sideways and fell. The wind rose again, and Alex lost sight breathed and choked on the sand in his mouth, he pulled a balaclava up over his mouth to keep the sand out and went towards Dugan when several inches of the stone wall that had covered him from the front exploded. Jordan, another soldier, grabbed him from behind and pulled him into the cover of the building. Jordan's blue eyes shone bright with fear and excitement. Someone's in the upstairs of the building behind us, he nearly shouted, taking pot shots at us. Let's light his ass up, Alex shouted, trying to will himself back from what had just happened. My rifle jammed, I'll, I'll cover you with my revolver, and if we can't get him quick, then we'll pull back and let the tanks bat clean up, he said. We want to keep that second floor of the building to set snipers, but if we have to take it down, we will. Alex looked up and saw the two soldiers had picked up Dugan, who was alive but limping, blood trickling from his right thigh. He nodded at Jordan and then stepped up into the building found a window with a wall that was mostly intact and looked up at the still-standing second floor of the third building in. He looked through the scope of the automatic rifle and saw the barrels of a gun sticking out of the upstairs window. Below the gunner, on a ledge that wrapped the tower of the building, there was a boy standing casually in the windstorm with his legs crossed, leaning back against the wall. He reached up and grabbed the gun by the barrel. The wind rose and the visibility decreased further. Alex could see the boy direct the barrel of the gun. There was a man holding it, but it seemed to Alex that the boy was controlling his aim. Then, when the boy had stopped and held the barrel, the man fired off a shot. Alex heard a scream. It was Dugan. Dugan had been hit again. The boy did a little hop with elfish nimbleness and clicked his heels together. Blood squirted from his chest, and he frowned, reached down and fingered at the wounds on his chest with a look of annoyance on his face. And then he reached up and grabbed the barrel and pointed it at Alex. Alex stepped aside and a bullet tore past him and through Jordan's helmet, spraying bits of brain and skull out into the wind and sand. Ah, Jesus. Jesus, Alex groaned. He didn't believe what he'd seen. That boy, the dead little boy, he was prancing around on a ledge no more than a foot wide, maybe less. He stepped back up, grabbed the barrel of the gun, and aimed it. Alex heard the single report of the gun and heard another scream. Alex aimed again and fired, this time at the boy. The boy's mouth opened in a void of smoke and ash, and then he disappeared in a gust of sand. Alex fired again and saw the sniper's head whip back before his body fell, slumped over the window. 
The gun felt dangling around his neck. Bullets were coming from behind them once again. Alex turned with his instincts and training taking over. He moved back between the buildings and then sprinted across to where Dugan had been. He found four other soldiers with Dugan. Clown from Kentucky, whose name was Bill Ford, and was known for his irrational fear of clowns. GMAC, or George McKenzie, from North Carolina. Big T's, or Tess from Texas, who was nicknamed for either her flirtations or her big set of T's. And then Double F, short for Featherfucker, whose nickname was based on an indecent act he was caught performing on a pillow one drunken night in the barracks. The fuck happened to him, Alex said, dropping to his knees. He slung his gun over his back shoulder and looked at Dugan, who was lying on his back. He was bleeding from his leg and holding his side. Then Alex saw it. There was a chunk of flesh missing from his left hip. The wound looked raw, but nothing like a gunshot would with the burning of flesh. It was too clean to be from an explosion and too large for a bullet. It looked like something had taken a very clean bite from his hip. I don't know, G-Mac said. We were helping him back to the line, and the wind came up, and we lost visibility. I heard him scream, Tease said, and then he fell into me. I swear we couldn't see for a second or two, but when the sand cleared, there was nothing there. We need to get him back, Alex said, in rage like he had never experienced welled up inside of him. These motherfuckers did this, and now they're all going to pay, Alex said. There is a wall about 30 yards up. If we can get to it, then we can cover from the rear and pursue. Fuck that. We got a tank, Clown said. Yeah, but the visibility is shit. If we can push the line, then the tank can come up and blow a hole through their cover. But we've got to make sure that we create a line of cover, Alex said. He sent Dugan back with T's and Clown. Him, GMAC, and Double F went forward. Alex had them cover him until he reached the wall. He moved, but as he did, the wind died and he expected a hail of bullets, but only the cover fire came. Then behind him, the wind picked up, and he lost all visibility of GMAC and Double F. They stopped firing. What are you doing? he thought, but then he realized that they probably didn't want to hit him because they could no longer see what they were doing. Alex looked ahead, and behind the last wall on the edge of the village, twenty or thirty men stood watching him, their stoic faces weathered from the sun and sand. He raised his gun on them, but none of them moved. They only stood with their weapons lowered, watching him as he approached. He looked through the scope and then realized they weren't carrying weapons at all. Instead, they were holding bones. The man in the center of the line stood directly across from Alex. The rest were dressed in normal village attire. But this man was dressed in nearly all black, and his face appeared to be dripping with blood. In his hands, he held a skull. It was large and deformed. It looked like the skull of a goat, but its horns were too large and they were twisted. The thing was oily and bronze in color, and something like a mist moved behind the empty sockets of its eyes. The man raised the skull towards him. The gesture was so much like somebody making a toast at dinner time that Alex barked out a short, humorless laugh. As the man raised the skull, so too did the wind increase. The sand rose and danced around him. Double F said, What the fuck was that? Before he nearly disappeared in the sand. The sand wasn't blowing in gusts and sheets. Instead, it seemed to come alive like a hive of a billion bees becoming agitated all at once. An echo of laughter, childish laughter, that was accompanied by something dark and sinister rose around him. He turned and saw the little boy run up behind GMAC. 
his jaw unhinging and exposing a mouthful of teeth, some mammalian and other shark-like. He leapt forward, and the two halves of his head snapped forward and clamped down on the side of G-Mac's helmet. A crunch, much like the sound of a bear biting into a melon, was the only sound Alex could hear above the noise of the sand. Blood spurted from the open wound, but then the boy bit again and again, and soon the head was gone. Alex thought insanely of the owl in the Tootsie Roll Pop commercials. How many licks does it take to get to the center of the Tootsie Roll Pop? Huh, George? Three? One? Two? Three? He laughed in the desert sands as the boy turned and ran past him, his tiny feet thudding with the sounds of thunderous hooves as he closed the distance like a lion running down a fawn. And next, Double F was screaming as the boy buried his impish hands into Double F's chest and began wiggling them around. The blood and gore was immediate, and the child looked so much like a child playing with a plate full of spaghetti. Then the boy turned and looked at him. His lips peeled back in a hellish grin, and Alex's bladder let loose, and then his bowels. And no more shitting in the sand, Alex thought, as the first shell from the tank soared overhead and everything went dark. He sat up in the cot he'd been sleeping on in the shelter. He'd been able to piece together enough money for a bed by pawning a knife Dugan had bought him. It had meant the world to him once, but now all he thought about was a meal, a warm bed, and a fix. It had been six weeks since he'd last seen the boy. It had also been six weeks since he was last sober. The night before, he'd needed to choose between a place to sleep and his fix. He had, to his surprise, chosen the bed. Alex sat up and looked around the shelter. A fog seemed to settle around his field of vision. His head ached and his stomach hurt. He was hungry and thirsty, but knew that anything he imbibed would come right back up. He was now firmly in the grip of addiction. He got to his feet and felt pain rush through his whole body in a way he could never have imagined before. He was only 27, wasn't he? He couldn't remember. How long had it been since he'd lost his job at the warehouse? All he could think about for a moment was his pain and his need. He opened his eyes and he saw them standing around him. G-Mac was missing the better portion of his head above his right eye. Double F looked like he had been chewed up and spit out, his eyeball dangling from its socket beneath his cracked helmet. Dugan had a hole in his leg, one in his shoulder and a chunk of flesh missing from his hip. Alex had found out when he woke up in the medical tent that Dugan had died three days before Alex had come out of the strange delirium he'd slipped into. They all stood around him looking at him somberly as the boy walked back and forth behind them, picking at his chest wounds and grinning at Alex. Alex looked around the shelter and saw men and women in various stages of addiction and suffering. Some had strange coughs and sores, others spoke to themselves. A young man with black hair was skipping in one place and hooting. Across the way, a guy stood in his cot masturbating with both hands as a woman across from him yipped like a coyote. All of them were caught in their own versions of hell. Alex watched as the boy, who in moments looked nothing like a boy but instead some sort of strange demon with a contorted skull and twisting horns, roamed the shelter, and the volume and intensity of the suffering increased in whomever he approached. The man who was jerking off dropped his member and began beating on his chest and screaming like King Kong. 
The coyote woman began howling and clawing at the air. The boy skipped over to the hooting man and crawled up on his back and began wriggling his fingers in the air, and Alex could see big, fat roaches climbing out from beneath the boy's fingernails and then burrowing into the skin on the man's back. The man fell hard to his knees, his hooting turning into cries of pain. He rocked back and forth and dug into his arms with his fingernails, screaming, Get, get, get them off! Oh, get them off! A few blocks from Pike's Market, just west of the Seattle Art Museum, a man in a suit hurried down the street. He was in town for a conference at one of the downtown hotels, and he'd taken his lunch hour to try to get a glimpse of the ocean before he had to fly back to the Midwest. He was uncomfortable in his business attire, where he was from. A button-up shirt, some boots, and some jeans were all it took to dress fancy. If his family could see him in this highfalutin get-up, they'd shit their pants. Kent saw a man squatting on the sidewalk, damn near falling out onto the road. His heart ached for the man. God knows Kent had tried to help people in the past. But it had been years since he'd led the veteran support group in his hometown. He resolved to walk past the man and say hello and treat him like a human being. I, I know it itches, but, but the child is a sand snake, the man shouted. He was an older man, Kent thought, but it was hard to tell. I mean, he looked old. His hair was turning gray and there were huge bags under his eyes. He looked up, but not at Kent, not at first. Whatever he was seeing, Kent had no doubt it wasn't anything that was actually there. The man had a cup sitting in front of him that had a dollar bill sitting in it. On top of the dollar bill, snaking up and out of the cup and onto the ground, was a large human shit. Get a job and stop shitting in our streets, another man said as he walked past. Kent heard him mumble, fucking lazy junkies, as he turned and went down the next block. The man didn't respond. His eyes were clear for a moment, more present, but still glazed with a sort of dreamy expression, full of fear. The boy, Dugan, Dugan, the boy, where is the boy, Dugan? Kent felt his knees go weak. This wasn't an older man, no. This was that troubled kid who'd come home from the war. Shit. He was a good kid, too. But he had witnessed about everyone around him die, and nobody really comes back from that. His name was, was, was Alex, and he'd gone to about five meetings before he assaulted someone at a warehouse he'd been working at. Ken had tried to reach out to him, but Alex had left town and wouldn't return his phone calls. He looked closer. No, no, this couldn't be Alex, he thought. Alex was 20 years younger than this man. It was just a coincidence. One of those things people do from small towns when they go to a big city and start making associations to make things more familiar and comfortable. Ken had reached in to grab his wallet until he saw the turd. Pulled his hand away, feeling ashamed for nearly giving this man, this bum, his money. He also felt dirty just looking at the man, extremely dirty. He wanted to shower. He would once he got back to his room. He'd wash himself and make sure to scrub the bottom of his shoes. He doubtlessly walked on the sidewalk where people had been shitting, and it was goddamn disgusting. So goddamn disgusting. The man looked up at Kent, and he felt sympathy and revolt rise in equal waves. He wanted to be away from this human piece of refuse, and he wanted to believe that it wasn't Alex. The man had a moment of clarity. He looked up, his eyes searching Kent. Do I know you? 
the man asked, his voice cracking. Kent stopped dead in his tracks, but then the man said, GMAC lives in the sand now where the worms wind through Jordan's skull. And then he began talking gibberish, and Kent felt a wave of relief. No, no, that's not Alex, he told himself, and Kent walked away. Alex looked up at the man, and a memory of sitting in a room with other, other what? Other veterans floated across his mind. Then the child rose up out of the trash can across from him like a serpent being called by a charmer. The child stalked across the ground towards Alex, and Alex cried out, Oh, no, 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 no. Then the boy followed Kent, and Alex reached out and tried to grab Kent by the ankle. Kent kicked at him and cursed. There was another bum on the next block, but Kent had kept his head up and walked right by. Two blocks further down, he didn't even register the man who was sitting inside the public trash can, giggling and biting at passersby. we there yet? One more time, I swear to God, one more time. Have we summarily arrived at our intended destination? Damn it, what? You sound like Siri. Every five minutes for the past 29 hours. Just look at the GPS! What does the GPS say? It says 45 minutes until... No. Wait, look at that. What? Ah, thought you could have your line back. What? Heh, <laughs> exactly. What does it say? Nothing. The GPS is turned into nonsense. It just says, All work and no play makes Syria dull over and over again. Hmm. I, I can't see anything, but wait. No, now there's a road. What road? Well, we were on I-95, but now it says, The Road to Desolation. And the first town coming up is Salem's Lot. Oh, God, blah, 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 blah. Pull over, I gotta take a leak! Huh, here's Salem's lot, but it's nothing but a, a used car lot. Is that a Rolls-Royce Wraith? There's a Buick 8, a Mercedes, a 58 Plymouth Fury. How odd. There are collector's cars, and they're in full color, but between them all, filling all the other aisles, are hearses that look to be in all black and white. I love it. Oh, I don't like the looks of this place. You like the looks of a golden shower a whole lot less, I guarantee you. Remember the acid rain scare of the 80s? Well, I'm not saying it was my fault or anything, but I deny nothing. Huh, <sighs> okay, okay, but don't take too long. I hate talking to car salesmen. Oh, Jesus Christ! No, I am not of the Christ. Oh, okay, uh, hi. Would you guys have a restroom? Yes. But it may be a little neglected. We don't often have customers using the facilities. But it has been a long time since we've had customers. The economy has, well, been sucked dry, shall we say. Oh, you can suck me dry after I flood your stalls. You are not what you appear to be, are you, my lordship? Oh, a fan. Always good to meet a fan. Take the second left after you go into the office. Now, would you two like to test drive any of the vessels? Well, if we've got to wait for Puggles, I'd like to try the Wraith. Ah, good choice. 
Let me get a plate for the car. Hmm. NOS 4A2. That is a strange plate number. Familiar, too. Where did you get a car like this? Ah, yes. Mr. Manx, the previous owner, was sympathetic to our kind. Your kind? Cause. I meant to say cause. Hot tits of Titania! The doors open automatically. That's cool. Why is there a miner in the back seat? The vessel draws its power from the child. Oh, yeah. Kind of like Harvey Epstein, Cosby III. What? No. There are no child fiddlers here. Here. Here are the keys, though you need them not. Be off now, though I advise you not to stop at the truck stop. The vehicles there do not take kindly to visitors. Blah! The trucks, shall we say, blah! Have quite the temperament. Cool. Why is the key shaped like a head? Oh, don't use that one. This one. There goes Brett. Uh, so, so this is quite the, the collection. Yes, we have vessels of all kinds. Do you like the hearses? They are a particular favorite of mine. At night, they become very active. There, there is something very familiar about you. Ah, uh, yes. I did not think you would remember, but we vampires, we always remember those who have tried to drive a stake through our hearts. Oh my god! Yes, look into my eyes, child. Yes, that is it. Now, come closer. They do not construct vehicles like this anymore. Feels like driving a sophisticated tank. This is fun! Mighty shades of Sheol! I didn't think you were real. Are you going to take me to Christmas land? Is... isn't that Michael Jackson's ranch? Oh, look it! There's a homeless woman! Get her! Get her! I suppose it couldn't hurt to pick her up. <clears throat> Excuse me, madame. Come back here and sit with me! Okay, yep. There's plenty of room. Oh, hey, kid. What is wrong with your teeth? Fish hooks? Just like my Mima's dentures. Oh, son of the great god Nurgle, why are you biting her? Why are you biting her? She doesn't like it! She doesn't like it! Where are you, Brent? Puggles. Jesus, I'm trapped underneath a fucking Mercedes surrounded by vampires and hearses. Come here, man with hat facing backwards. Blah! I have a stake for you. Or perhaps you are the stake. Blah! And I have all of the steak sauce. Oh, shit, yeah, there's a stick. Hey! Oh, oh. Keep your paws off of my stick. Ah! Oh, don't worry about the the parasites out there. What? Why not? Just stand back and watch. You may want to get that umbrella out of the car. I can't believe they'd try and sell me a car with a homicidal child. You think they could have a tire-cleaning dwarf or a window-washing selkie with this? What is going on at the car lot? No! That doesn't look fun! Oh my god, Puggles is... is still evacuating his bladder. What? All over the cosmos. Oh, 
How's the weather? No, the golden rain, it is like sunshine. Oh, it burns us! It burns! Huh, it even smells like fresh morning dew. It drove nice, but it's hard to get that Sunday afternoon drive sort of feel with a child feeding on a hobo in the back seat. Oh, let's get out of here. Oh, where's the next stop? Uh, look at that, it says Pennywise Playland. Sounds fun. is a production of Warfox Media! Today's story was For Your Service by Matt Cobbett! Music by Brett Norwood! Sass by Puggles! Good day, Monsterbaiters. Brett here. If you enjoyed this episode of Monster Porn, be sure you're subscribed on your preferred podcast app. And please, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Every subscription and review helps this show grow. Be sure to check out the official Monster Porn store at monsterpornpodcast.com store, where you can find t-shirts, phone cases, stickers, the Moms Love Monster Porn mug, fingers, and the iceberg that sank the Titanic. Follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Hi, this is Matt. I just wanted to remind you about some podcast recommendations if you are still looking for other shows to listen to. I've previously recommended Darkness Prevails and the Scared to Death podcast. Go ahead and check them out. That's it. Thanks as always for listening, and have a great couple of weeks. Until next time, stay weird, and Godspeed, Strange Cowboy. All right, this is Matt. Uh, I just wanted to write... God damn it. <laughs> the economy has been well... Blah, sucked dry, still we say. <laughs> okay, that was very distracting. <laughs> the economy has well... Blah, been sucked dry, shall we say. <laughs> It's like so loud that it catches me on guard. I'm not like I'm not meaning to say it that loud. It's just yeah. happening. Yeah! <laughs> uh, we need to have the pterodactyl in the next part of this. What if he got bit by a, bl- a vampire? So he's like, <laughs> yeah! I'm to suck him. Yeah! <laughs> oh god, that is the harshest sound. Does that hurt your throat to make that noise? Because like every time you do it, I like jump. Even though I, even when I know it's gonna happen. I don't have any throat left. <laughs> Thanks to your mom. One guy, an old buddy of mine, 
He'd just become an old... Or, yeah, but... <laughs> hey, I even... He even appreciated my shit. <laughs> I appreciate your shit, too, <laughs> This is where we were putting them all last week, Alex said, standing straight and looking past Harry Barry. God damn it. Harry <laughs> Barry. Hair Bear. Hair Bear. <laughs> Harry Barry. You should call him that. He committed Harry Barry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the cutest suicide ever. <laughs> So cuddly. So cuddly. I think you've only got two write-ups before you turn into... God damn it. Barry said, but Alex hand a finger... Hand. (laughs) I hand a finger, too. Hand a finger. I hand five fingers. (laughs) You crawled across the desert floor and supply carrot... Damn it. Supply carrots? He approached the gap in the rock wall and found a missing stone that created a peephole he peered through it <laughs> when i first looked at that when i thought it said pee hole <laughs> so it like really messed with me i could kind of tell <laughs> i thought you were gonna start snickering if you said people yeah at least it wasn't a glory hole <laughs> then he would have lost an eye in iraq in iraq iraq yeah so it just would have been rack he just lost an eye in her. <laughs> get Get them off! Woo-hoo! Oh, get them off! Woo-hoo! The last part sounding like a bad impression of Tigger off of Winnie the Pooh. That's not how Tigger sounds. I forgot about the Tigger part. Oh, how does God. Tigger? How does Tigger sound? Woo-hoo! Woo-hoo! Like the creepy porn guy to me. What's that? <laughs> sound like the creepy porn guy to me. It was a little goofy. That's actually making that sound because it sounded very similar to that noise that the homeless man in Seattle is making when he's putting his hand into the water. I told you that story, right? I don't remember this. Oh, one. Yeah. Well, I was in a bathroom, a public bathroom in Seattle, very early in the morning, and I walked in to take a pee, and like some strange homeless man walked out. And there was another one behind me, washing his hands in the sink, and I don't know. I mean, I'm assuming they had hot water because his hands were like purple, and uh, and he had like sores everywhere, hmm. but he was just sitting there, putting his hand into the water for a second, and he'd go, ah! and take his hands out. And take his hands out. It's a weird little giggle. I'm like in there pissing, and I'm thinking, this dude's gonna turn around and fucking murder me. This guy's gonna murder me. This is like the most awkward 30 seconds of my life. I'm like trying to pee as fast as I can because I'm like, this guy is fucking crazy. It was it was terrifying. <laughs> just, ah, ooh, ooh. Oof. Mm. Still like makes me like get like goosebumps thinking about it. <laughs> this is so fucking scary. <laughs> <laughs>